This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So this is uh, Paul Verschur uh, with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And in this episode that we recorded as part of the CSN Barcelona Cognition, Brain and Technology Summer School series, I'm talking to Dmitry Sklosky. Um And Dmitry, you come out of engineering, no, of theoretical physics. And from theoretical physics, you went into neuroscience. And also in your, in your presentation this morning, you also show how, let's say, this interest in theory is translating towards how you understand brains. So, so what's what? How do you see that link exactly between theory and the practical sides of neuroscience? So, historically, neuroscience uh, has been rich on a number of experimental observations and facts that have been assembled through a large number of techniques on a variety of different levels uh, and animals. Uh, but what has been lacking is a theoretical framework that would allow to put these facts into unified perspective and to make future predictions and eventually to understand how the brain uh, works. And um, neuroscientists always um, are interested in finding an appropriate framework to put the facts in. And um, in our case... Um, we had a lot of success with doing it by borrowing the ideas from electrical engineering, specifically from the field of adaptive signal processing. Right. So, um, so, so you, what you emphasized a lot there was, was how very specific ideas about signal processing as developed within engineering for a long time by now might help us to get some leverage in how we can understand the brain. And... Um, so what do you see as some, some promising starting points there when you talk about adaptive filtering? Because in some sense, there are quite a number of people who go around saying, well, the brain is an adaptive filter. Um, uh, Kalman filters have been very successful in engineering, so the brain also must operate like one, etc. So, but, but to make that now more specific, where do you really see leverage in these kinds of more normative approaches towards the brain? Well, I think um, to make um, such ideas uh, successful and of practical value uh, is to make a connection between theory and experiment on a very specific level so that we could predict, for example, response properties of individual neurons um, given a certain stimulus presentation, which could be compared with electrophysiological recordings, for example. And I think one of the places where um, this could be done easiest are sensory systems uh, like uh, visual, for example, where you have complete control over the stimulus and you also have access to the neurons by recording in the retina or further down in the vertebrate pathway in the LGN. And the reason I think that the engineering principles should apply there is because both systems have to deal with the same kind of limitations um, that are presented by the physical world, uh, such as um, limitations on the dynamic range and the bandwidth of the communication 
uh, from the retina, say, to LGN and from LGN to the cortex. Mm -hmm. But now, can you give me an example? Could you talk me through an example of how such a filter would help us to understand what happens in the retina and LGN? So one example uh, which goes um, uh, back in time uh, is the receptive fields of the retinal or LGN neurons um, that have been known to um, be biphasic in time and center surround in space. And both of those observations can be explained based on the predictive coding framework that originates in engineering, where you say that um, the system is trying to compress the incoming signal by subtracting a prediction from the actual signal value. So in terms of biphasic temporal response, for example, you would use the previous values of the signal to predict the current one, and that's how you get a biphasic shape. In the case of the spatial response uh, shape, the center surround shape, you use the surrounding values of the signal, like um, the surrounding values of image pixels, to predict the value of the pixel, a central pixel in the image, uh, and subtracting that prediction. And that's how you can explain both the biphasic and the surround, center surround shape of the response. Mm -hmm. But now, as a start, the intuition to, to, to look at encoding by neurons, also certainly in, the, in sensory systems, from this perspective, goes back quite a long way. I mean, you mentioned yourself, um, Barlow, for instance. That's right. Where he tapped into this. So um, what, what has been the progress, if we compare it to the intuitions of Barlow and where we are today? Um, so I think that... Um, uh, so Barlow and Atnev um, uh, particularly... Um, borrowed the ideas from engineering and think Barlow's point of view is usually summarized by the maximum redundancy reduction, where the idea is that you just uh, transmit um, the part of the signal that is non-redundant or new or surprising or couldn't have pre predicted. And then it has been followed uh, by the introduction of predictive coding framework, which is a concrete uh, quantitative framework that allows to want to generate the predictions for the receptive fields like biphasic and center surround responses that I talked about. And that was done by Srinivasan, Laughlin, and Dubs in 1982. And then this line of work was continued uh, by several people, most notably uh, Attic and Van Hatteren. And what we did recently is just try to take this work to its uh, logical conclusion and... Um, derive a normative theory in the most direct and transparent way. Uh, and that in that way, we could compare the predictions to the actual measurements of spatio-temporal receptive fields that were done in cat and and uh, insect visual system. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what would now be the key parameters of this model? Right, so, what, so if I would like to now take the model as a filter to look again at the brain itself... What are the key parameters I should be sensitive to? Right. So the, the model uh, is actually um, has um, no free parameters in a sense that once you define a natural stimulus ensemble, um, so that's a statistics of the input, 
and um, you specify the signal-to-noise ratio, then there is a unique prediction for the filter shape. And that can be compared with the um, electrophysiologically measured um, receptive fields by, say, a reverse correlation method. Mm -hmm. But now, um, in some sense, if you take something like the signal-to-noise ratio of these neurons, this might not be a constant necessarily, right? This could vary dependent on let's say, the presence of neuromodulators or not. So how well would it generalize them beyond this fixing of these kinds of parameters? Right. I was actually referring um, to the signal-to-noise ratio in the input um, that would have to do with um, the um, absolute intensity level. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is also internal noise, of course, and uh, the impact of that noise depends on the specific circuit implementation mm -hmm. of, um, uh, of the filter, uh, which um, we have one proposal for um, that I discussed earlier this morning, uh, which is based on the lattice filter idea. Right. But, now, but before we go to the lattice filter, let, let's look at the, the simpler case first, right? Because in some sense, the key signature that, that you see as con confirming the physiology is this biphasic response, which essentially means um, I would have, let's say, some onset-driven response, and then I would have, let's say, uh, an, an orthogonal or an opposite, an opposite response in turn, like I might have, let's say, a depolarizing response to something, and then I'm hyperpolarizing, right? This, is a, this is a, would be a correct characterization of, let's say, the simplest form of such a, of such a filter. And so, so what I'm curious about is how specific can you make these responses, right? So also what I posed you, the question I posed you in the morning, one way to, to, to look at these, these, the negative side of the response, the, the, the negative tail, could be to say like, well, after hyperpolarization is a standard feature of all neurons, whether they're encoding anything or not. So this is just a non-specific component. And now you're saying, no, 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 it's a specific component because that's exactly what I need for my predictive filter. So how could we make this experimentally testable? Or do you think the data is already out there to, to allow us to make a decision on this? Uh, I think the answer is partially yes. And the reason, um, I, I, I mean, of course, there is a physiological mechanism like after hyperpolarization that has to underlie this response. But I think the evidence to say uh, that um, this response is there to implement productive uh, filtering comes from the change in the filter shape in response to the change in the stimulus statistics. So, for example, at high contrast, at high signal-to-noise ratio, you get very strong biphasic response with a strong and sharp negative component. When you go to low contrast, to low signal-to-noise ratio, the filter changes um, and it becomes, uh, it, it carries most of the weight in the first peak, uh, which gets wider, and the negative um, rebound actually gets much weaker. Mm -hmm. And that would be consistent with the filter doing more of low-pass filtering rather than high-pass filtering. Mm -hmm. Uh, such um, change would be expected from the predictive coding framework, but would require a different physiological implementation. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And so the fact that the neuron response follows this prediction suggests that uh, the predictive coding framework has 
value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that would also mean that for the predictive coding framework, you should see a stimulus-specific modulation of both the positive and the negative phase, right? That's correct. And is there sufficient evidence for that? If we, if we go to just, let's say, standard physiology of the visual system, and we start to let look at, let's say, the encoding of more or less complex scenes, as an example. Do you see examples of this? Um, only um, very few. Uh, so, as I mentioned, there is a change in contrast that people looked at, and lately they've been adding more and more noise to the images and looking at the response. But I think that this line of work actually... Um, should become a bigger project right now. And we are trying to make connection with experimentalists to actually test this idea more exhaustively by playing with the different statistical ensembles of natural scenes and seeing if the filter would change accordingly. So it is, in some sense, work in progress. Right, okay, understood. Now, now my my other question is also... Um, so before again, we go to the, the complex version of the model, which is this lattice filter system. Um, something funny happens in the argument about adaptive filters, right? Because, as we also discussed earlier, originally the intuition is like, well, adaptive filters were actually a, a near optimal way or an optimal way, if you want, to show how you can transduce information through some channel, okay? And this is also developed as a technique given the limitations and the possibilities of the engineering that we do. And there, indeed, bandwidth is always an issue. Um, but now for brains themselves, for, for, for the brain, um, maybe bandwidth is not an issue in the same way. Like, for instance, you, you could argue that actually the whole principle of the brain is to do massive I.O., but all these connections that you have available to you with actually minimal local computation, because biophysically that's more complex. So the whole design might actually be exactly orthogonal to what the engineers were thinking of when they designed these adaptive filters. So so maybe then it's the wrong metaphor to apply to this system. Yeah, it's actually a very astute observation, Paul, because uh, when we started this work, our main motivation was uh, so-called uh, communication bottleneck, as I think Barlow referred to it, where he said, well, you know, there are many more photoreceptors uh, in the vertebrate retina than there are ganglion cells. Mm-hmm. And so there is a bottleneck for transmitting information to the rest of the brain, and therefore there must be compression, which could be done by redundancy reduction. And that's the philosophy that we started with. Uh, but I think as the work progressed... Um, especially after looking at other systems, such as, for example, the fly visual system, where the bottleneck is not as explicit as it is in the vertebrate pathway, um, we started questioning this assumption of, uh, of the need for compression. And at the same time, what started to become clear that there could be computational advantages to implementing this predictive coding framework uh, and decorrelating the incoming signal, especially when it's done in a stage-wise fashion like it's done in the lattice filter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because when I looked up um, in signal processing textbooks, it turns out that lattice filters 
in, in addition to performing decorrelation of the original signal uh, stream, they also are used um, for feature construction because if you output um, output signal from each stage of the lattice filter, you get a set of orthogonal features which are very convenient to be used as a set for uh, predicting or training or learning a correct response mm -hmm. to another input, right. which presumably what the brain is trying to achieve in associative learning or something like that. Okay, so, um, so now we move to this lattice filter. Right. So, so what makes the lattice filter interesting? How is it different from the filter we just talked about? Right. So, lattice filter is a specific circuit implementation of a, a predictive coding filter, and uh, the defining characteristics is that decorrelation is done in stages, where each consecutive stage decorrelates the signal on uh, a different time scale, which seem to correspond to electrophysiological observations of receptive fields in the retina and LGN. Specifically, it has been measured that the temporal receptive field in LGN are longer than the ones in the retina. And that's why it seems that the lattice filter may be a good model uh, for the system. Mm -hmm. So the key thing is a lattice filter is hierarchical. At every stage it performs the same operation roughly, which essentially is to just decorrelate the inputs. Exactly. Is that a reasonable way to interpret it? That's right, on a different time scale. Okay, so that means you, you decorrelate at varying time scales as you go through That's the filter. Right. As if you go through this cascade of filters essentially. That's right. But the local operations will be the same. Similar. In the simplest model, they're exactly the same, yeah. but the lattice filter can be modified to have uh, slightly different operations. So what, what does the lattice filter now solve that your previous uh, linear filter did not solve? Uh, so uh, I, I think a better way to put it is that the general linear filter is a mathematical concept that performs optimal prediction and therefore widens the incoming stimulus. Uh, Lattice filter is a specific circuit implementation of that filter. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in particular, it's the one which allows you to do the correlation in stages by using biologically realistic elements such as neurons uh, that have uh, relatively uh, short time constants. Mm -hmm. But given you the ability uh, to decorrelate the signal over longer time scale due to the cascade mm -hmm. hierarchical structure right. that you mentioned. Okay, but now, so so if it's getting close to implementation, it also means that you must be able to make more specific predictions about how a biological system could implement such a filter. So what would be these, these specific predictions that, that would come out of that? That's exactly right. That's the reason to go for this uh, specific circuit implementation. And I think the strength of the lattice filter model is that you can map the specific units in the circuit to the specific neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. And in particular, then, we could predict the responses of the retinal neurons versus the LGN neurons, according to what the lattice filter tells you. But also, we can predict that there should be at least two different types 
of responses uh, in LGN, for example, which correspond to the so-called forward and backward prediction error filters in the uh, lattice filter. And those responses actually have been discovered electrophysiologically, and they could be identified um, with the classes of cells that are called lagged and non-lagged mm -hmm. cells in the LGN. And the non-lagged were discovered by Master Nardi more than 20 years ago, uh, and they have a distinct property that, uh, the, the, although they also have a biphasic response, but the second phase is greater in amplitude than the first, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, rather unusual. Is that still a negative phase, or that can be a positive phase, or it doesn't matter? Right, so uh, the important thing is that the two phases have the different signs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether the first one is plus and the second is minus, or the first is minus mm -hmm. and the second is plus. Um, and in this way, the classification into lagged and non-lagged cells is separate from the classifications of cells into on and off. Mm -hmm. So it, both lagged and non-lagged cells can come in on and off mm -hmm. varieties. Um, what's the duration of this lagged response? So, um, so a, a typical delay that so so what what lagged cells do is in response to a step stimulus, uh, they respond with an initial delay, which could be a few tens of milliseconds, mm -hmm. and that's why they're called lagged. Right. Okay. But then, how would your your filter cascade account for that kind of lag, given that you would only have let's say, three or four synaptic steps to get there. Right? If we go from the right. photoreceptor to our ganglion cells and then to your lag cells, actually, would, well, let's say two to three synaptic steps. So how would you now relate that to this cascade of filters with your positive and your negative uh, prediction components? So um, it is a little bit hard to explain without showing any diagrams, but... Uh, I can say but for that we recommend people to look at the right. video lecture. Exactly, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the basic idea is that the photoreceptors uh, at the very front of the cascade uh, perform low-pass filtering, thus introducing the delay of various frequency components, and then each stage of the pathway invokes a so-called all-pass filter which transmits all the frequency components equally, but introduces differential phase delays depending on the frequency, mm -hmm. which could be thought of as delays, as just pure delays. Right. And as those delays accumulate from stage to stage, they lead to this electrophysiologically uh, notable uh, lagged responses. But it would mean... In your case, the prediction would be that somewhere in this network of ganglion cells or so, this buildup of delays would then happen. Is, is that a, the, the logical consequence? That, that's right. I think um, those uh, interactions um, could happen already on the bipolar um, cell level. For example, it is known that um, although off bipolar cells have fast response, and they use um, uh, ionotropic ion, uh, um, uh, um, ion channels. Ion channels. Uh, the on bipolar cells uh, have a delayed response, 
because they use a metabotropic ion mm -hmm. channels. Okay. And that delay response, uh, I think, is about 20 milliseconds mm -hmm. or so. So that could be uh, the original mm -hmm. source of the delay. Right. But then there is further processing, of course, in the bipolar to uh, mm -hmm. ganglion cell synapses and in the amacrine cell network right. um, exactly. uh, interacting mm -hmm. with bipolar mm -hmm. cells. So what I liked also in, in this model that, that you presented is that you actually purposefully want to apply it both to, let's say, vertebrates and invertebrate systems, right? Because you, you do believe, or wish at least, that the same principles will hold. Right. This is correct. Um, so in, as an example, you talked about a specific system in the fly brain. Right. So, so how well did, did the model map onto that system? How well did that work out? Yeah, I think what you said is really important that, you know, a really good, powerful and correct theory has to apply across species, has to be general enough. And so we're particularly pleased that this theory works for invertebrate as well as like uh, in flies. And in particular, um, in flies, um, the photoreceptors synapse on the cells called um, large monopolar cells, um, which have two biggest uh, classes that are called L1 and L2, and they're very similar in their initial response and uh, the part of their anatomical features, which led us to think about the dual pathway communication, which is a hallmark of the lattice filter itself. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got to the idea of the lattice filter, mm -hmm. thinking about L1 and L2 as being those two pathways, the forward and the backward prediction error right. filter. So the, what evidence did you find that they could indeed exchange information in a way that would be consistent with that model? So um, that evidence is still uh, somewhat sketchy because uh, it is very hard to do electrophysiology in flies. And what electrophysiology has been done was based mostly on recording from cell bodies, although there was some in um, the axons. But those measurements initially did not show difference in response properties between L1 and L2. However, more recent measurements of the calcium dynamics in the axon terminals of L1, L2, which is the output of those cells, showed a different response between L1 and L2. And in fact, the kind of response that has been reported by the Clandinian lab shows um, features indicative of the, feed for, um, of the forward and backward pathways of the lattice filter. Mm -hmm. Right. So... Now, you're in a very unique position, right? Because so you work at uh, Genelia Farms, and you also have been very much involved in, in a very detailed reconstruction of the brain of these flies, right? So, it's, and now, the data set that you have to play in there, and I hope that you can explain to me a little bit what you guys have been doing there, this is also giving you now a grounding, again, to look at this more theoretical model, right? So... So what's the data you have in your hands now on that fly brain at, at the anatomical level that would help you to understand this kind of filter model? Uh, so what um, 
you're referring to is another direction in my group, which is a high throughput uh, reconstruction of um, the connectome or the wiring diagram of the brain on the synapse level. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing that in the fly visual system. And um, this project is now bearing fruits. And in particular, we were able to assemble the pathway, um, the visual pathway in fly through the first two neuropils, lamina and medulla. And medulla was done for the first time. And what we have now is a kind of idealized um, column processing column uh, which repeats itself uh, in, in the visual system in, in parallel and uh, that column contains about uh, 50 neurons and we have attempted to map out all the synaptic connections between those 50 neurons. How many synaptic connections do they have? So it's uh, of order of 10,000. Okay. That's including the gap junction so that's only the synaptic connections? The current uh, imaging techniques that we use, uh, that we're using based on electron microscopy doesn't allow us to see gap junctions mm -hmm. clearly um, in our data set. Mm -hmm. So what we're reporting is just the chemical synapses. Right, okay. So now, um, the wiring diagram that you now have extracted from that column, how does it map onto this, this model of, of an adaptive filter? So parts of that wiring diagram are consistent with the lattice filter, mm -hmm. but what we are also seeing is that um, the circuit is more complex, and in particular, it seems that it isn't just focused on the decorrelation as one would expect from the compression and redundancy reduction point of view, but also on the feature extraction mm -hmm. that we mentioned previously, mm -hmm. um, using, of course, decorrelation, but on feature extraction, that can be used to build other features more for more specific purposes, such as, for example, motion detection. But how would I see that at an anatomical level? Right, so I have my photoreceptor projections, and I have my lobula, and I have my uh, medulla. Oh, no, I have, I have my um, lamina and medulla. So what are the specific wiring templates, if you want, that you can now extract from it to say, okay, this wiring template is more the predictive filter, and that wiring template is, let's say, feature extraction? Uh, yeah, so, um, of course, just from anatomy, it might be hard to know that conclusively. Mm -hmm. um, so what we know already is that, you know, L1 and L2 both are postsynaptic to photoreceptors, which is what you would expect in the first stage of the lattice filter. We know that they interact by means of gap junctions. It's been reported by the Bohr's lab. So they could potentially be the two pathways, forward and backward pathways of the lattice filter. And their um, output, as measured by calcium imaging, seems to support that interpretation. Um, what happens afterwards in the medulla is still are rather um, uh, uh, somewhat unclear and still work in progress, but it is already known that L1 pathway and L2 pathway are involved in motion detection. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we are doing, we're tracing through the cells postsynaptic through L1 and L2 to see if they would um, 
be consistent with the interpretation of feature construction or decorrelation. Okay, but now, what, if you have fifty, you have, you have fifty neurons, um, a column. You have about ten thousand connections. So I could argue that okay, in that setup, you can find basically any type of connection pattern you you would like. So in some sense, the question is more about which which obvious connection patterns are absent, right? So which pattern of connectivity is absent that would support your uh, hypothesis? So um, let me um, uh, say it this way. So uh, it is true that there is a zoo of connections mm -hmm. and we have to orient ourselves in it. Uh, but there are a few things that help us. The first one is that uh, each connection um, has a multiple number of synapses in parallel. So if neurons A and B have synaptic connection, they're usually uh, tens or sometimes more than a hundred synaptic contacts in parallel. And so we can order connections in terms of their strength by using the number of contacts as a proxy for connection weight. And of course, initially we focus on the strongest connection. So in some sense, we first look at the scaffolding of that network. Mm -hmm. That's the first um, thing that we use. The second is um, how that circuit is divided in between columns. So, what, so the fly visual system, if you think about looking at a fly eye, uh, starts with about 800 um, so-called amatidia, which correspond to basically pixels of the, of the image that the fly sees. And then each of those pixels are, is initially processed independently from the other. And that forms the basis of the so-called column that uh, has about 50 neurons. That's mm -hmm. the one I described. Right. And the structure, processing structure is uh, rather periodic. So it's almost crystalline structure of 800 mm -hmm. units. Okay. And uh, we focused initially on the connection within the unit. But uh, if... Uh, the structure where to perform motion detection, it has to correlate signals from adjacent pixels at least. And therefore, there must be connections between the columns. And so we know then that the connections that are necessary for motion detection should span multiple columns. Mm -hmm. And that's how we can uh, determine which connections would be would have to be involved right. in motion detection. So if we did not see any connections between columns at this stage, we would be very surprised because then the system couldn't do motion detection. Right. Fortunately, we found such connections mm -hmm. and they are a natural substrate for motion mm -hmm. detection. Did you find any evidence for the famous uh, Reichardt detector that sort of tries to extract motion by correlating different input signals? So I think this is a million-dollar question, of course, and uh, I think philosophically the Reichert detection is correct in the sense that the system is comparing um, a signal from one pixel with a delayed signal from an adjacent pixel. But we um, seem to think, uh, seem to favor a slightly different form of such comparison. Um, which actually does not involve multiplication, um, but contains another nonlinearity uh, that is necessary for forming a motion signal. Which is what? The threshold? Uh, a rectification. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now, um, 
So this is pretty amazing, right? So, so in some sense, you guys have it all now because you have access to an exquisite data set of this brain. You have a theory that that now you're trying to match, but in some sense, I could say, but maybe you're barking up the wrong tree, right? Because maybe this fly, the, the fly brain or any brain did not evolve to optimize signal transduction. It just got optimized to generate behavior. And all you're telling me now is how in this complex uh, set of connections in the fly brain, I can optimize the signal. But at some point, this fly just has to go left or right or up and down or land or, or whatever, or, you know, pursue the sugar, the sugar. So, um, where does this mapping take place? How do I get behavior out of this and also functionally relevant responses? Right. So this is, of course, the holy grail of neuroscience. How do you get from sensory inputs to behavior? Um, and um, we think that we're moving in the right direction. And um, there are two um, arguments that I can make. Well, the first one is the idea behind those redundancy reduction and predictive coding approaches is to come up with some theoretical framework which is not uh, based on the specific task that the animal has to perform, right? So you say, well, I want to communicate information to the rest, the rest of the brain as fully and as quickly as possible. And then whatever task is needed to do will be possible to do if the preserve all the information. So initially, of course, this requirement was viewed as a strength of a theory because you can come up with the predictions that were task independent, which I think is completely appropriate for the front end of the visual system. As we are moving further into the visual system, of course, this is not good anymore, and we have to come up with task-specific com computations. And I think motion detection is the first step in that direction. The second part of my answer is, you know, um, I, um, uh, I I would I I, I would uh, put it in the following way, which I learned uh, from talking with Sidney Brenner, who um, spearheaded the reconstruction of the. Uh, C. elegans connectum uh, about 30 years ago. And uh, the explanation is the following. So whenever you come up with a model, there is no way to prove fully and rigorously that the model is correct. Um, you can only disprove models by saying that they don't fit experimental facts. And um, if the model is not disproven, it's still in the running. Uh, but you always get questions as, you know, how do you know that your model is the other one, is, is the right one. How come there couldn't be some other wire that sends information directly from the photoreceptors to the mm -hmm. avoidance response neurons and flies? And that's exactly why we are doing a complete connectome reconstruction. Because once we reconstruct all the connections in the fly brain, we can answer that there is no other wire. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if we combine the theoretical approaches with electrophysiology and with behavioral tests with the connectome, that's when we can say, well, no, we are not barking up the wrong tree. Mm -hmm. um, this is a necessary condition. The model would have to use this particular pathway. Right. But, not, but there's one aspect that, that I'm missing, because you could also, you look, certainly if you look at the insect case, we know 
that, that after the medulla, we start to hit these white field neurons that we know physiologically show responses that are highly adapted to the behavior of the animal. Like you might have specific optic flow patterns, you might have uh, approaching obstacles, like time-to-contact type responses. So in that sense, you just one in your in your model and in your reconstruction just one synapse away from that response. So isn't another test of your model to, to show that with just one single synaptic step you can then generate these kinds of established and also behaviorally relevant physiological responses of your white field neurons. So so how would that work in your in your model? Yeah so uh, I think that um I cannot give you a complete answer now because we haven't done that part of the work. Uh, but this is something that people have thought about in the motion detection context because once you have elementary motion detection that detect motion in a local part of the visual field, then the inputs of those local detectors can be combined to produce a global motion response in a given neuron. And one example of those neurons are, for example, the neurons that are um, supposed to reflect um, rotations around different axes um, in in the flight of a fly, um, which require a very particular map of the motion response direction. And um, they can be, of course, built by using motion detectors in different parts of the visual field with different directional selectivity. Mm -hmm. Right. But then, in your case, to extract those features, you would have to tap into the filter cascade at multiple levels. You cannot just read it out at a single level, if I understood it right. Uh, It it depends on uh, how um, complicated a temporal sequence, uh, you need to predict Mm -hmm. the response. I think for the motion detection, you need to just compare uh, two points in time, uh, Mm -hmm. at least if I take a correlation-based framework of Reichert and Hasselstein seriously. Um, So I think that you should be able to do that relatively simply. But of course, for more complex predictions then you would have to tap into the lattice filter on many stages, yes. Right, okay. So that, that might be not a testable prediction that would come from, from this framework. That's correct. Right? Okay, so that means if in your reconstruction of this fly brain you do not find a very wide multi-scale readout right from these wide field neurons in this, this whole column yeah. or this set of columns, then the cascade filter might not be the way the problem is solved. Uh, that, that is true, of course, but I, I have to say that our uh, observation is that unlike engineering application of lattice filters, for example, in speech processes, processing, it's not uncommon to have a hundred or more stages of the lattice filter. Uh, we think in the brain there aren't as many stages. Um, and, you know, just having a few stages can accomplish a lot because the processing in the brain is uh, applied not on a single channel level because those columns actually interact with each mm-hmm. other the um, uh, more the further you go into the system. 
then the filter can accomplish a lot actually with just a few stages. Okay, but that's the kind of compression of such a filter that the engineers haven't really tried yet. Uh, well, I, I cannot say that they haven't tried, uh -huh. but it's certainly not uh, just a textbook not... version of right. the filter. Mm -hmm. um, it, I don't know, it may exist in the literature on mm -hmm. some level. I think what engineers, I think one thing that it seems that the brain is using all the time that uh, is uh, rare in engineering is the use of nonlinearities. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think that's one thing we can learn from right. the brains. But I guess engineers have good reasons not to use them. Because it complicates their lives. <laughs> exactly, yes. It's just difficult <laughs> to analyze and understand, right? Exactly. Right. And, and nature doesn't have these kinds of scruples, apparently. <laughs> so, um, we also touched upon this whole issue of, let's say, optimal encoding frameworks versus finite capacity models, right? So, the adaptive filter is more finite capacity because you try to squeeze as much information as you can through a channel. That, that's, that's this bottleneck. But... In optimal coding frameworks, you start to sort of, you're not too worried about that problem, right? You just worry about how do I sort of compress my information in an optimal way um, in sort of information theoretical terms. Okay. So do you see this as contradictory approaches or do, do you see this as, as complementary? Do you see this column of 50 cells in the fly brain maybe doing both or is it really sort of more an exclusive choice that we have to make here? Uh I'm sure. I'm not sure. I got the exact. Uh, well, in the in the engineering literature, these would be seen as different approaches, right? As possibly also contradictory. Whether you deal with optimal coding or with finite capacity channels. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So I think that at this point, um, the experimental evidence is just maybe barely sufficient to make such a fine distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, but th that's currently, you know, we're investigating that currently and okay. uh, see if uh, we need additional experiments mm -hmm. to make that distinction clearly. Right. Yeah. So the other thing is, if we now go back to the vertebrate case, we have the retina, now you have the LGN, you give us a model of how we can think about it. There's of, let's say, optimally decorrelating these yeah. inputs. And now we hit the cortex. And then you could argue, well, now the cortex has this perfectly massaged signal. So that means from a signal processing perspective, the game for cortex should become a different game, right? Because now it's optimally decorrelated, it's a perfect signal. So from the perspective of an adaptive filter, your cortex, so these higher level processing stories, will be playing a different game. What would that game be, if you would have to guess uh, today? Well, um, I guess I would have specu to speculate at this point, uh, but uh, I think um, the way I would put it is that if the goal of predictive coding is to decorrelate the signal as much as possible, then the stages in the retina and the LGN take you as far as possible with linear filters. Yes, there are nonlinearities in neurons along the way, but there is also evidence they can they can conspire in a way to generate a linear response. Now, when you get to the cortex, the responses of the cells are decidedly nonlinear, as for example exhibited by the complex cells in V1. And so what I think is happening is that the cortex 
may be continuing the job of the decorrelating of the input stimulus and the feature construction, which the lattice filter stages were doing before, but invoking additional nonlinearities mm -hmm. to make an even better predictions and make the outgoing signals even more independent than mm -hmm. is possible with linear filters. Okay. Or possibly actually start to correlate again, to group features together in meaningful ways. To, predi uh, to predict uh, function, yeah. uh, predict uh, uh, behavioral output, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's great. So, we made progress here in understanding sensory systems. So, but now, Dimitri, uh, so to, to finish up, we always have, have two questions, right? So, you're, you come from theoretical physics, you you have been working very hard on let's say this, at, at, at the anatomy of these of these brains, so you know really how hard that is, and then you you, you try to combine that now with all the theoretical work, which I think is actually the only way forward, right? To look at all this detail uh, within anatomy. So, but on the basis of experience, what would be a Dimitri's law that we should all follow in our aims to understand the brain and behavior? That's a tough question. So, I, I come from a, a tradition in theoretical physics which favored starting with a simple and intuitive model of even the most complex phenomena that one could be studying. Uh, and the reason for doing this is, I think, because our brains are better suited at analyzing the simple models. And by simple, I mean models involving very few relevant parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you build such a model, it kind of prevents you from overfeeding experimental data. And also, it makes all the assumptions very transparent. Mm. And I think that um, my, uh, my style of work in theoretical neuroscience is strongly based on that tradition in theoretical physics, where um, the simplicity and the clarity of the model is uh, the main driving force. And so, even when studying such complex things like the brain and how it computes, I would like to start with the situations that can be broken down on the very simple level involving very few uh, variables mm -hmm. and few or no adjustable parameters. Right. And that's why we uh, focused on the sensory system. And only once we get a foothold there, I think then we can move on further. But again, chipping away a small and digestible part of the problem that we can solve in a clear and intuitive way right. and then move on. Okay, so Dimitri's law is keep it simple. Pretty much. Okay, very good. And the second one, so if we're going to get you back here uh, five years from now, uh, since since I'm such an unpleasant person, I would like to remind you of the predictions you've been making, right? So so what's what's the the one prediction 
that you feel most strongly about today? I should remind you of five years from now to ask you, well, look, did, it really, <laughs> did that really come out? <laughs> What's that one prediction? I should remind you of five years from now. So I think that um, our strongest predictions are the shapes of receptive fields of the LGN neurons. And although some of them have been seen already, I think uh, that there are more details there that the lattice filter model contains, uh, but haven't been completely verified experimentally. And in particular, on the circuit level, uh, I think we have a model for computation, but how it is implemented in terms of individual neuron synaptic properties. Uh, for example, in LGN, there is a structure called triadic synapse and so on. Uh, how that structure builds up the receptive field uh, the lattice filter predicts is not clear. But the prediction would be that it is exactly the computation that is proposed by the lattice filter, which is uh, an all-pass filter which has a frequency-depending mm -hmm. uh, phase delay. Right. Very good. So, Dmitry Slotsky, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much, Paul, for having me here. Great. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.